Uh, This reading begins in in verse 19, making reference to Stephen Stoning, which was back in chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. And uh, uh, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival on unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing. Uh, who, uh, was, do, uh, was doing was, was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, "Now I know without doubt." that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outside entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, he was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Ah, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had happened to Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they would be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the anointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thanks, Mark. Let's pray as we come to to look at what this passage is all about. Father God, we've already prayed this evening, we sung that um, your spirit would be poured out into our lives. And we do pray that your spirit now would open our, our eyes, would open our hearts to understand what you have to say to us. And that as you work through us, we do pray that your word would continue to spread and flourish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things I love about um, our house at this time of year is having an open fire because um, I never tire of lighting a piece of newspaper and seeing it catch fire and the flame just spreading and, and the wood itself starting to burn and this roaring fire take place. There's something about it which just um, uh, keeps you excited, whether you're a young child or an adult. Uh, certainly does for me anyway. Um, last week we saw the, the momentous event in the history of the church as the gospel went to the Gentiles starting with one family from there it would spread to the rest of the world and we'll see this evening the start of that happening as people believe and turn to the Lord and lives are changed by Christ this passage starts in in chapter 11 by making reference to the word of God spreading and it ends in Verse 24 of chapter 12, with the word of God again continuing to spread and flourish. It is like a fire catching and going forth. But in between those, those two bookends, there is a lot of awful lot that happens, isn't there? And what we see this evening is what the role of the church is in the spread of the gospel. It's by the power of the spirit that people hear and believe... So what is the role of Christians in that? What is our role in that? What should we be doing to help the spread of the gospel? 
what we're going to see this evening is um, what we've been talking about for quite a while here at uh, LCBC um, in terms of our mission, the four E's. We see the church engaging, equipping, encouraging, and enabling. And the first of those things we see is engaging people with Verse 19, as Mark says, picks up the story, which we left back in chapter 8. Remember how Stephen was martyred and Saul approved of killing him? Have a quick flick back a few pages to chapter 8, verse 1. And there we were told, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Good, like a bad day for the church. But then we're told in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so as we come back to chapter 11, we see now what has happened to those who were scattered. Because we read in verse 19, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, Spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, telling the good news about the Lord Jesus. Well, we looked last week at what that good news is, as we saw Peter uh, explaining the gospel to the, the household of Cornelius. And I would encourage you to keep coming back to, to that message that we read in, in chapter 10, reminding yourself of who Jesus is, what has he done? Because it's when we start to forget that, that we'll become cold in our faith, we'll become ineffective in our faith. We need to keep reminding ourselves of those truths of the gospel. As these believers started to spread the gospel, we're told the Lord's hand was with them, turns to the Lord. The persecution forced them to leave their homes, to force them to leave their places of comfort. But where would they go? If they still wanted comfort, they would have found somewhere else, I'm sure, where they could have lived together in peace. But to choose to go to Antioch and speak to Greeks was not the easy option. First of all, it was quite a trek. As we can see on this map, let's have a quick look at, just to give you an idea of uh, where they were going here. So this is where we are in Jerusalem. This is Judea. So we went to Cyrene, over to Cyprus, from here to Cyprus, and we ended up in Antioch, capital of Syria. It was a trek. But also, it's not the sort of place you were going to go if you wanted an, an easy audience. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was uh, full of uh, temples to other gods. It was morally corrupt. They weren't going to expect people to be flocking to listen to them. But they weren't bothered by that. They saw their persecution as an opportunity. They were still grieving the loss of Stephen, this great man of faith, But instead of allowing that to get them down, to be discouraged, they followed his example. They were inspired by him. And they engaged with those who didn't know Christ. But when news of what was going on in Antioch reached the church in Jerusalem, what did they do? 
They realised that the young church there could do with some help. And so they sent Barnabas to enable, to facilitate the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel. And now we can maybe see why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem after persecution broke out against the church. And it was a dangerous place to be. From there they could direct the growth of the wider church. They couldn't go to Antioch. They had other work to do in Jerusalem. But they could enable gospel work to be done by sending someone to help them. And they sent one of their best men. Not just somebody they'd rather get rid of, but um, Barnabas, the great encourager, who will come on to. But he's described here as a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The sort of guy you'd rather keep hold of, so more people could come to the Lord. No, they sent him out to Antioch. But more than that, because Barnabas thought, well, actually there's somebody else who could help the work here. Saul. Remember after his conversion, Saul spent a few days with the disciples in Damascus, uh, immediately started preaching about Jesus as the Messiah, but he said a lot of the Jews against him. So he escaped through Jerusalem, but the Jews there also tried to kill him. So he went to Tarsus, and that's where he'd been for the last few years. But now Barnabas goes in person to look for him, knowing that this is the one who could help the church in Antioch right at this time. He knows that he will be a great inspiration to the believers in that city. So what is it that Barnabas and Saul do in Antioch? You would expect them to be preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, which I'm sure they would have done some of that. Um, But that's not actually the thing we're told here. Have a look at verse 26. Because there we're told, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Young Christians, new Christians need teaching, they need equipping, they need discipling, all different ways of saying the same thing. They they need to be built up in their faith. Great numbers of people had turned to the Lord, and Barnabas and Saul therefore taught great numbers of people. They taught them and helped them grow in their faith. But would they have taught them? Well, how to to love Christ wholeheartedly, how to live the gospel in, in all of life, They would have taught them from God's word. They would have taught them God's plan of salvation. How all the scriptures all through the Old Testament pointed to to Jesus. All those things that Stephen taught about back in chapter 7, but in more detail. And they would have explained how those things apply to their lives now. They would have taught them how to disciple others, how to, to tell others about Jesus Christ. And another thing they would have taught them would have been encouraging one another to persevere. How to encourage one another to serve the Lord joyfully in the words of our mission and persevere in the face of trials. How does Barnabas do that? Well, have a look at verse 23. It says, he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. In other words, when they were tempted to to give up because there was just too much uh, opposition, too many setbacks, he got them to keep going, to stand firm, to trust in the Lord. And the interesting thing is that later they are told that a famine would spread over the Roman world. 
And that then it would be the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who would need help. So having previously received help, they are now able to reciprocate and send gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. They've become an encouraging church as well as an enabling church. You see the way they have grown. And so we end chapter 11 hugely encouraged by all that's been going on in these last few chapters. There have been great chapters ever since the killing of Stephen. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch converted. We've seen Saul himself converted. We've seen the household of Cornelius converted. We've seen the gospel going to the Gentiles. We've seen many in Antioch and other places being converted. It's a cause for great celebration and rejoicing. But then we come into chapter 12, and our confidence is dented massively. Because the scene shifts back to Jerusalem, and we learn of the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter by a ruthless tyrant, Herod Agrippa. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that throughout history, the church has experienced continuous cycles of expansion and growth, followed by periods of opposition and decline. And this passage is a great reminder, it's a great encouragement that the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church, which is built on the rock, which is Christ. So let's have a look at this episode in, in chapter 12, because it um, starts with desperation, but it ends with celebration. And it teaches that in all things we are to depend on God's strength in prayer, which again is an important value for us at LCBC. Luke goes to great lengths to describe how tight the security is around Peter. Instead of the usual arrangements of being handcuffed to one soldier, he's sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries were told stood guard at the entrance. There are four squads of four soldiers each dedicated to making sure he doesn't escape. He's like Hannibal Lecter, isn't he? Or in more recent times, the sister of Sherlock Holmes. Not to be a spoiler for last week's episode, but um, a highly dangerous criminal in a high-security prison. But when you see it in the films, you know they're going to escape. Um, but this isn't fantasy, this is real life. It says Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. He doesn't want to upset the Jews. It will probably be a little bit like Jesus' trial, a show trial. He's not going to get a fair trial. James has just been put to death with a sword. We don't hear anything about his trial. Peter will be tried and executed. And the church would have been extremely worried. But they wouldn't have forgotten how Peter had already been arrested before. And that um, in a similarly hopeless situation, he and John had been released. And after their release, the first thing they did was praise God for his sovereign power over the earth, over their situation, and pray for more boldness to proclaim the gospel. There'll be times when we look at a situation and think it is actually humanly impossible. They just cannot change. It might be as we read the latest Open Doors watch list um, uh, publication which came out last week of countries uh, where Christians suffer persecution. 
It makes pretty sad reading. You think, how can these countries ever change? How will North Korea ever change? It may be in our own country where certain values and beliefs that are dishonoring to God are becoming ingrained in society. Laws are being passed which are dishonoring to God. It may be at our own personal levels where there are situations that just seem impossible. Maybe our health, it may be we're being discriminated against at work. Maybe we're being unfairly treated in the community. Maybe situations in our own families are impossible to change. This is a humanly impossible situation, but the good news is that nothing is impossible with God. And the remarkable thing about Peter's escape is that it is unremarkable. You know, if this were James Bond escaping from the clutch of uh, the baddies, there would be um, all sorts of highly sophisticated escape things taking place, a lot of suspense. There'll be um, car chases, guys with machine guns, fights on the roof of a train, and all sorts of things going on. But here, an angel appears, a light shines. He strikes Peter on the side, he wakes him up which is surprising in itself that Peter is able to sleep, knowing the following day he may be executed, but it just shows the peace he's at, knowing that he's in the Lord's hands. The angel says, quick, get up. Chains fall off, puts his clothes on, his sandals on, follows him. It's also normal that he doesn't even know if it's really happening, or whether it's just a dream or, or a vision. They pass the first guards, the second guards, they reach the iron gate, which opens by itself, they go through. And when he'd walked the length of one street, the angel left him, job done. And Peter's standing there in the middle of the street, realising, actually, this is no dream. This is actually taking place. He's escaped from a high-security prison and nobody's even noticed. And the passivity of Peter in all of this, the fact that he was just carried along emphasizes that God was behind it all. He knows without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel. He rescued him from Herod's clutches and from everything else people were worried about, his death. He's free and it's down to God. The Lord had brought him out of prison. And if you're thinking, it's a shame that such things never happen now. Well, actually, this book, I don't know if any of you read it, The Heavenly Man, records the life of a Christian guy in China called Brother Yun, who um, was imprisoned, who was tortured by the government authorities. But Yun continued his ministry in prison. Uh, many people were converted through him. And he ended up at the, uh, the maximum security prison in, uh, in Jinzhou. Uh, and he describes how one day he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in a very similar way. Uh, telling him to simply walk out this heavily guarded prison, even though he had two broken legs at the time, um, risking being shot to death on the spot. But he wrote later that he obeyed that voice, walked straight through several prison doors that were somehow left open in front of the many prison guards who somehow didn't see him, right out of the main gate. Now, as with all the miracles, some people are dismissive. It can possibly have happened. But why not? Because with God, all things are possible. 
But whilst God has the power to do anything he wants in whatever way he wants and using whatever means he wants, most often he chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And having described the hopeless situation in the opening four verses of chapter 12, with James having been killed already, Peter facing the same future, what does it say in verse 5? So Peter was kept in prison, but, it's a big but, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We often think that prayer is something, well, we'll do as a last resort or nothing else works. We'll try everything else we can do in our own strength first and then we'll pray. But prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have. What does it mean to say they were praying earnestly? Well, I think it conveys two ideas. One is perseverance. They were faithful. They were constant in prayer. They kept going. Don't give up, even when it looks like your prayers are not being answered. Continue to seek the Lord's will. And the other is intensity. Pray with a a passion and an urgency as though you really want this thing to happen that you're praying for. What is one of the most memorable moments of prayer in the Bible? Isn't the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus praying to the Father. In Luke 22, we read, an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Whilst the disciples slept, Jesus persevered in prayer. And he prayed with passion and urgency. The moment was imminent. He was about to be arrested And he prayed for strength to resist the temptation not to do the Father's will. He wanted to do the Father's will. And so he prayed earnestly that that would happen. Here the church is praying earnestly because they don't want Peter to die. And if it is God's will, that he would rescue him. They were praying with urgency because they know he doesn't have long before he will be executed. And they are persevering in prayer. When Peter escapes, he goes to the house of Mary. It says, many people have gathered and were praying. This is the middle of the night and they're praying. Now let's, let's look at the reaction when Peter arrives because you do wonder if there was a sense of fear and panic as this knock on the door comes in the middle of the night. After all, Herod had already arrested some who belonged to the church. There's no reason why he couldn't arrest more. Maybe come to put them in prison. Maybe it was the secret police at the door. So being brave people that they are, they send the servant girl, Rhoda, to answer the door to see who it is. And we've got this comical situation, haven't we, where she recognises Peter's voice, but instead of of letting him in, she runs back to tell the others, guess what, it's Peter, he's at the door. Again, don't be silly. I know we've been praying for him, but you know we don't expect him to be released just like that. So human, isn't it? Meanwhile, Peter's still there knocking away at the door. Are they ever going to open this door and let me in? And eventually they come back, they open the door, and sure enough, it's Peter. And they were astonished. You would be, wouldn't you? He tells them to be quiet. Maybe he doesn't want to to wake the neighbours. Maybe he doesn't want to get them into trouble. 
He knows the soldiers will be looking for him. And so he just tells them to make sure the other James, the, the brother of Jesus, who becomes one of the leaders in the church, make sure he knows what has happened. Encourage him that the prayers have been answered. And then he leaves. How was it that Peter was released? Yes, God sent an angel. But God's people were praying for his release. They didn't know how God would release him. Or even whether he would, whether that was part of his plan. It was beyond their their human understanding. How an angel could appear and, and make the chains fall off and open doors. How could they possibly expect that? So it's not surprising they were astonished when Peter appears at the door. But praying in faith is about praying that God would achieve his will in a way that would surprise us and that we haven't even thought of. Now we don't know why God in his providence allowed James to die and Peter to live. And we shouldn't try and understand God's plans. They are beyond us. It's not that people didn't pray enough for James or that God loved Peter more than James. He called James home earlier than Peter. Maybe because he just still had work for Peter to do. But the lesson for us in all of this is the need for earnest prayer, even when we can't see what the answer is. When Brother Yuan escaped from prison in China, he found out that the whole church had been fasting and praying for him for a whole week leading up to his release. Well, we started our passage this evening in chapter 11, verse 19, where we read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word. At the beginning of chapter 12, everything seemed hopeless. Harold was wielding his power. Those who belonged to the church were being arrested and killed. But by the end of the chapter, has been this complete reversal. And in that final section, which we haven't got time to read now, we'll read that because Herod did not give praise to God, he was struck down by an angel of the Lord and died. And the chapter finishes in verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And that provides the introduction to chapter 13 and the, the first missionary journey of Paul. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel, particularly when God's people come together in prayer. It is mission unstoppable. And the early church is a great inspiration to us, isn't it, in terms of their commitment to prayer. And I think as we look ahead to 2017 and all the challenges it holds in store for us, If we want the gospel to spread, if we want to see lives changed by Christ, let us continue to engage, to enable, to equip and encourage. But above all, let us come together regularly and earnestly in prayer. Amen.